My name is Island Malcolm, and this is Northern Elements. A podcast miniseries that takes a close look at some of the basic materials of Canada. Each episode focuses on a conversation with people whose work involves profound knowledge of their natural and cultural environments. Along the way, we discuss the relationships between ideas and practices, the impact of global networks on local ways of life, and the ways that we can adapt to ecological changes in our precarious world. In this episode, I speak with Toronto designer, artist, and professor Phyllis Clausen to learn about her research on the interactions between natural and built environments. Phyllis, who holds a master's degree in architecture from McGill University, is a professor at the Ryerson School of Interior Design. Phyllis's work includes a series of fascinating exhibitions, design prototypes, publications, and even a dramatic production, Weathering Architecture, performed at Toronto's Harbourfront Centre in March 2008. Many of her projects have addressed the potential uses of innovative textiles and other materials in creating weather-responsive buildings, buildings that can adapt to and inform us of changes in local climates. Some of this work is collected in her 2009 book, Snow, Rain, Light, Wind. The two of us met via phone in May 2020 to discuss climate, urban ecosystems, and the long-term effects of the pandemic keeping us both indoors. Since Villez is in a visual field, some of the projects that she mentions in our conversation are best approached through images. For more information about these projects, you can check out the document linked in the SoundCloud description for this episode, which Phyllis has generously compiled for further reading. I have been teaching at Ryerson School of Interior Design for now 23 years. My research umbrella has changed over the 23 years naturally, so I ended up in academia because I always had interest in researching things and knowledge it just thrills me. When I started teaching in the School of Interior Design, people were easily picking materials for a project just because they loved how it looked. And that deeply bothered me. I mean, yeah, there's the visual aspect, but there's always the cultural, philosophical side, environmental side. And I remember one project that I was really impressed by actually in Ontario, because that was kind of like a turning point thinking that, wow, I live in such an innovative province. It's a townhouse built in 1996. But what was really interesting is it's cut off from city services, a net zero house, meaning you don't take anything from the the city but now there's net positive even you give back to the city all the services water electricity sewage everything is cut off you have to handle everything on site so rainwater is harvested purified used in the house and then taken back through the soil filtration interior materials as well were chosen for non-off-gassing materials 
And this is 1996, right? So I thought, brilliant. I have to bring this into interior design. So then I got into material innovations in design. Then I got this grant from Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council in Canada. That was, I believe, 2005. So I was like, yes, finally, I could prototype. It's the weathering architecture prototype. So how do I make sense of material innovations within the context of the building industry? We're accustomed to think buildings are not permeable. There's a good reason for that. You know, we, we don't want to be hot where we live. We don't want to be too cold where we live. As human beings, we like comfort. But in academia, I can dream a bit. So this research wasn't for buildings today. But as we evolve in materials research, how could we adopt just so that we live more in tune with our environment as opposed to just in the sealed architecture that's permanently 18 degrees and we're all happy ever after but that's never the case right like if you can't open your window and if you don't feel the seasonal changes we're not happy human beings so that led to the snow rain light wind prototypes which meant i did research trying to understand each element and then imagine how these new materials would allow the building to live with these elements in harmony as opposed to just heating the building like could the building tell me by changing color or by going from dark to light could it tell me it's hot it's too cold so that was really a lot of fun some of the um, pieces were exhibited at a gallery and it was interactive like kinetic sculptures so i had to create in a gallery setting the elements that I imagined would occur outside. You know, we gave people flashlights and so people would point things and it would say hot or cold and this wind prototype, basically people generate some wind and then the whole prototype would illuminate. And then this is still in the works, but so just recently I thought I would concentrate on one of the elements. So I'm really interested in water ecology. Like fashion industry is well known in terms of producing fashion garments pollute the water all around the world. But building industries contribution to deterioration of water ecology is silent. It's actually worse than fashion industry because when you even extract the material, like you're using water, and then during the manufacturing process, the water is polluted. This is my profession. I love it. I love buildings. But at the same time, the damage to the environment and in particular to the water ecology is so huge. So I'm trying to bring that into a smaller umbrella recently. And I thought I would write a book about it, basically looking at uh, water ecology around where I live, which is, you know, the Great Lakes. It's so hard to live near a lake and not be able to swim. So kind of understanding what are greater water issues from watershed to buildings that generate energy to like evergreen brickworks. It was the old brick factory from 100 years ago and it's in the floodplain of Don River. Evergreen, the non-for-profit, took it over about a decade ago. So it's built in the floodplain and the buildings are made to flood. Isn't that amazing? If you can't avoid the flood, you let it flood, but then you have to let the building dry 
for example, you can't do your electrical outlets close to the ground because when it's going to flood, you don't want electrical damage. It's welcoming the flood and designing with the flood rather than trying to put off the flood for centuries. One other example I wanted to give you was this uh, relatively new firm. They uh, were so interested in plastic pollution and the great garbage patch. So they created this open-air solar plastic melter. They took it on a ship and they traveled in the Atlantic collecting plastic along their way, hoping to reach the garbage patch. And what they said is basically was quite touching. If you don't hit the garbage patch, to find plastic is like seeking gold in the big ocean because the plastic pulverizes and then is into small bits. So they had to carry a fishing net to catch all the particles. But from the particles they collected on the ship, they melted it and turned it into new objects. They became a coffee table or another design object. These kind of initiatives I'm really interested in, like from the small scale of glass bottles or water containers to the full scale of the building. I love that story about making materials out of refuse, out of garbage. Thinking more about the question of scale, you mentioned that you've been really inspired by the innovative work happening in Ontario. So when you're doing your work, do you think a lot about the particular material environments that are local, that are near you? Or is your work also applicable more broadly to other environments globally? I talk about the practice of architecture where innovation is involved. Whether that happens in Ontario or not, in the greater umbrella of material innovation, using local materials and local expertise as well as local technology is key. So you can't, for example, bring wood from the Amazon and then have a carpenter build something and then it's shipped to a home in God knows where. You know, the decade of flying everywhere for architectural projects, I mean, even the architects I respect have done it fly today to Dubai, the next day to Thailand, and, you know, because they had projects all over the world, and they still, some big firms still do. But now there's a little bit more care about even the design footprint, not just the material footprint, but the travel even during the design process could be huge. So there is a number of certifications in building practice, but the one that I'm most interested in is living building challenge. It looks at a building's not only material extraction and use, but also it looks at a hundred years of footprint. And then the other thing that they do is there's something called the declare list. Just like any food product we buy, we expect the company to list what is in that product and it has occupant health as well. So occupant health is not just about air we breathe. It's partly air we breathe in our homes, which are most toxic than apparently outside. But also, if I can open my window, that makes me happy. Well, that's a plus for the living building challenge. So this way, because this emphasizes not just the material use, but from extraction to 100 years of 
being in a building, you have suddenly real accountability. And I mean, 100 years is a really good time when restaurants literally are renovated every two years because fashion dictates it's old now. I was fascinated by Felix's explanation of sustainability concerns at all stages of the design and building process, from the extraction of materials to their durability a century later. But one question that often comes up with sustainability is when should we replace outdated technology with new, more efficient designs, since creating something new will require us to consume more materials? Is there a conflict between innovation and sustainability? When I asked Phyllis about this, she gave me a different way of understanding innovation. Because the earth is changing, natural materials are disappearing, and technology based on those materials may become obsolete. In a sense, the earth is innovating in response to human-induced changes, and humans now need to find ways to keep up. about the ways that modern society tends to be driven by a desire for novelty and innovation, meaning that it can be difficult to promote projects that are based on sustainability. So how do you navigate this? A lot of the premise of design teaching concentrates on aesthetics, which is beautiful. You know, you can just dream and think about things and talk about things. But in reality, houses or buildings are being built. And if we don't say anything on that front, I feel like I'm not doing my job as an educator. And my message is that we can't practice design as is. This generation, especially they're left with materials that are not even naturally made because, again, I can give you one example. After the uh, volcano erupted in um, Hawaii, they found the volcano melted plastic debris in the ocean with the volcanic rock, and there's this new uh, man-slash-nature-made material. Materials, as we know, coming from nature will disappear. I mean, they're already disappearing. Like, animals are being extinct, so are materials. So my take on material innovation is when it does something helpful in terms of how we try to mitigate our building practices and climate change. If a material, for example, lets in air when the building needs air, to me that's innovative because I'm not using a machine to bring in air. Actually, that technology is already built into that material to open up its pores to let in air. But when it's minus 40 outside and I need heat, it does the reverse. So some of these technologies are coming from the fashion industry or, say, the diver suits. You know, when they are underwater, they protect them from water. But as soon as they emerge from water, that material has to breathe And some of these innovations are happening at the nanotechnology level where you don't see anything. Like when I think of material innovations for buildings, I think of more functional and environment-related innovations incorporated into the building materials, not just for appearance. It can be hard to put a disciplinary label on Phyllis's work. Because like many efforts to respond to environmental problems, it often incorporates perspectives from artistic, social, and scientific fields. 
Her design work also tends to have a strong ethical dimension. Our conversation about material innovations often turn to how these technologies can be made accessible to everyone, and to the intersections between environmental and human concerns. So in addition to your work on climate and material environments, you did some research in the past that took up contemporary social problems, such as providing adaptable housing for people facing homelessness. Do you see these social and environmental strands of your work as integrated with one another? Yeah, that work came after I worked with one firm, Levitt Goodman Architects from Toronto, there was actually a real client of hard-to-house group of people, and the government, then progressive government, uh, you know, gave funding to create housing. And I was involved as an architect in that project. And then I took that work when I started teaching to the design studio, and suddenly there was a project where dressing up the building was out of question. The money the government gave is all about creating a healthy environment for this hard-to-house people. And so it was kind of interesting how to make uh, environments safe and livable and create a family out of people who come from very disconnected lives and environments. So those were like real philosophical questions to ask. I kind of kept that thread of thought into the material resource as well. So material resource is not always about the most high-tech and who can afford it. Yeah, some of the technologies I'm talking about, it's at the lab level expensive, but when it comes out of the labs, it should be available for everyone. Remember that material they give to runners? When you stop, your body loses all the heat, right? And people are cold. It looks like aluminum foil they give to runners. That basically took so much research How to make a material that weighs nothing, that takes up so little space, yet keeps people warm. Even in the cities, they give it to homeless people because, well, sometimes their blankets are soaked in the rain and they're cold, right? Its implications can go from space travel to homeless people. You know what I mean? I really like that kind of breadth of material investigation. Do you ever work with materials that come from bioengineering? You know that branch of engineering that's like, let's make things that are as sticky as gecko skin. Yeah, so there is actually a huge interest in that part of design. Uh, So there are a couple of trends coming up. Like there's one called biophilic design or biomimicry. The person who established the term, Janine Banyas, who wrote the book on biomimicry, Basically, her premise is if nature has done everything for so many billion years, why is it that what we make as human beings is always toxic? Imagine mm-hmm. a clam and how it shuts itself apparently and seals itself is like 4,000 times more powerful than any glue that we produce. And the glue we use in building environments or the adhesives, they're toxic. So how could we learn from the clam, not to imitate the shape of the clam, but how they function? So I'm really interested in that. The only thing is sometimes that is proposed as if that is the only option. Like it's really wrong in my viewpoint to think one answer fits all. The building industry is so complex. It has so many tentacles that touch on so many things. So 
I agree with the premise of learning from biology and nature, but at the same time, just to think that will solve the problem, unfortunately, uh, there's the whole industry behind it. Something that quickly became clear to me was that it's very difficult to talk about building materials without addressing not only environmental concerns, but also changes in the economy and in political structures. Filiz's own career was profoundly affected by the recession of the early 1990s, and project funding is often dependent on the decisions made by provincial and municipal governments. I guess one more thing I'd be interested to hear about is your personal history living in Toronto. Like, how did you end up in Toronto? Does the city inform any of your work? Or has your relationship with the city changed in the time you've lived there? I know that Toronto's changed quite a bit. Us ending up in Toronto completely relates back to the recession early 90s in Montreal. So we finished our master's at McGill. We think the world is our oyster. And then suddenly the recession hits. All the architectural projects cancelled. Offices we worked at, if there were English speakers, they moved to Boston or whatever. Of course, in Montreal, then you could still have a nice meal, be unemployed and have a nice meal at a restaurant. But there were 30 of us having dinner and three people were employed. And those were francophones, grew up there. And we were like, okay, just finished our master's and unemployed. Uh, what to do next, <laughs> right? And the recession hit Toronto later, so I don't regret moving to Toronto. French was my third language. The comfort level of using my second language rather than my third language, probably. Architecture-wise, the community has changed a lot since early 90s. At first, it felt very secluded and dominated by men. And partly the reason I got into it a bit is because, you know, Levitt Goodman Architects, husband and wife, partners they were amazing and really they showed me a different part of how architecture is practiced and more socially engaged so I learned a lot from them I got into rather than this corporate architecture I got into more socially engaged architectural circle and then I started teaching and that was it once I got into teaching I think that kind of made it concrete so it wasn't like I was going to move from Toronto to somewhere else Toronto, in terms of what's happening architecturally, there's engaging debate about innovation in architecture and design. But like any other city, I think the hurdles are huge, right? Like the building codes. And remember that example of housing project in, from 1996 in Riverdale Healthy House project? For that, they had to remove building codes issues related to how sewage is taken out of your home, how electricity is delivered to your home. Building codes, yes, I understand there's a reason why they're there, but at the same time, given the severity of the problems, things need to relax a bit. Like the um, founder of the Living Building Challenge was pointing, I think the next innovation will be in the toilet. For hundreds of years, without questioning, sewage just goes down the drain. 
Well, it's to the extent that lakes, rivers, seas are choked. What he was saying is actually if compost toilet is allowed by the building code, we may have cleaner water. Uh, mm -hmm. Or when there's flooding because of climate change, uh, it doesn't take the sewage water into the lake and then the whole water ecology is shut for months, if not years. So yeah, it's tightly woven in terms of what the building code tells you to do, what the building industry accepts. Yes, you don't want any building to fall apart, sure. But if it doesn't allow innovation, things will not change. Previously in this series, I had conversations with people in their homes and workspaces, crowded around tables with steaming mugs of tea. The experience of talking to Phyllis was very different, and in fact, less material, because the social climate had changed so dramatically. The airborne threat of COVID-19 had led us both to isolate ourselves in the more enclosed ecosystems of our homes, where we hoped to weather this new kind of storm. I wondered how this dramatic change in our lifestyles might incorporate previous research in material innovations, and might also alter the field. I've been thinking about this in light of the past few weeks where we've all been inside. Well, we might be facing another major recession, but I also wonder if this experience might have a long-term impact on how we think about interior design and indoor spaces. I have been thinking quite a bit too. I mean, sure, life may go back to normal at one point and we don't care how close people get to each other. But in the near future, well, that's our preoccupation. When will I be able to enter a building with others and make sure that I can keep a safe distance? The government is saying in the interim, like restaurants, they will be able to operate at 50% capacity. So you won't be able to sit people like sardines or homes, like because we're used to North American standards of a nuclear family living in a home. But imagine in most of the countries, sometimes extended families, people don't have as much space. How are we going to achieve that comfort level? Uh, so one is spatial, so the distance, and how often will we need it? Uh, will life go back to normal and then we will forget about this as a blip? But the other one is, again, materiality. Like how often did you wipe that doorknob? where everybody grabs, right? Do we choose materials that have that self-cleansing capacity? Do we rely on nanotechnology? Say my doorknob cleans itself every day. Each time I touch it, it cleans itself. Wouldn't that be lovely? I think, I mean, this is going to have long-lasting influence on academic research, that's for sure. I mean, already with the personal protection devices, you can see so many millions of dollars invested. It is a drive for sure. We've talked a lot about how you think about sustainable building design, how you think about the scarcity of particular materials, how those materials are getting more scarce. I'm wondering about inclement weather in the age of climate change and the potential for increased storms, for instance. So the need to build homes that are actually more resilient 10 years from now than the kind of things we're building now. 
Actually, I mean, I read about this, so some of the things I'm interested in, so therefore I read about, but I don't have the expertise. But uh, what I understand, actually, the flooding, especially the flash flooding in urban settings, is a problem that we created, meaning Earth is capable of absorbing the water, but once you pave everything, of course, that water has no place to be absorbed, but just run down the stream. Actually, there's, uh, like, again, that is one of the innovative products that, that are being built, asphalt that allows water to seep into the soil underneath. What's happening is at the urban level, wetlands are introduced. So there's a big push on wetlands just so that the water has a place to go and has a place to filter itself. It's nature's filtration system. And I think the city designers, from politicians to builders, they have to pay attention to these things because we can't keep building the way we do. The whole building industry, as far as I'm concerned, has to question how we have built over the past century that brought us here and undo that, slowly undo that. One thing that's become clear to me after talking to Mike, Jerry, and Phyllis is that it's not just that humans shape natural materials. In some less tangible way, the shaping happens in both directions at once. The story that we often tell is that of wealthy and privileged humans exerting their will on the world, often with disastrous effects. It's not that the story is wrong. There's good reason to be anxious about changes in the environment, from overfishing to deforestation, from violent storms to viral diseases. But there are other, more complex stories that we could also keep alive. Stories about the coevolution of natural environments and our ways of thinking about them. Stories that are not just about power and struggle, but about curiosity, survival, and care. It's long past time, as Phyllis says, to undo and remake some of the habits that led us here. We need to imagine how we can build literally, a better place to live. We need to make homes that do not isolate us from our environments, but that locate us within them. So yeah, knowing climate is uh, changing and can, will continue to change for the worse. So you have to kind of project into the next hundred years and say, okay, how are we gonna mitigate with all this? Yeah, those are all really an opportunity for us to rise above the daily nitty-gritty things that we care about. Like, we have to kind of lift our head up and say, okay, like, those are really interesting design questions, actually. And we have to start implementing strategies for them. Thank you for listening to Northern Elements. I'm Island Malcolm. And this episode featured Phyllis Klassen. For more episodes, follow this mini-series on SoundCloud, and be sure to check out the further reading document that accompanies this episode. You can also find Northern Elements on Spotify and Anchor. Northern Elements is supported by a fellowship from the Penn Program in Environmental Humanities.